Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, speaking of needing a tune-up or an overhaul, yesterday I had the pleasure of visiting the Sensuous Steel Art Display at the Frist Center here in Nashville. Now, it's not art on canvas. These are real cars, cars that are Sensuous Steel. It's outrageous. I absolutely loved it. Well, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. This is where we're going to unpack your questions, you the listeners where you send in real-life questions, and we kind of unpack some of those to look at ways we can know our passions, to live life fully, laugh readily, work with joy, have fulfilling, meaningful, profitable work. Those are the things we're going to be talking about. got some great questions from you today that we're going to be covering. Going to be titling as a theme for today, No, That's Impossible. Well, here's some of the questions. Dan, I earned $29,000 in five months with a little Kindle book that I didn't write. Now, that's not a question, but it's something I want to share with you from a, a listener. Dan, after reading 48 Days, I finally got the guts to leave a company with poor ethics and found a much better job. But, and we'll go into what his question is. I'm 26 years old, feel as though I don't have any expertise. What do you do if you're 26 or 66 and feel like you don't recognize any particular expertise, anything that makes you remarkable? You got to break that log jam. Get through that. Trust me. Dan, I want to replace my day job where I make $80,000 a year. What can I do? And then someone says, I've just come to terms with the fact that I don't like sales. How can I replace my significant income? Well, that's going to be an interesting challenge. We'll blast right into that. You can't replace your income if you don't like sales. Well, I'll, I'll wait and share that when we look, get to that question. Here's a quotation for today. It comes from Nelson Mandela, who said, it's always seems impossible until it's done. It always seems impossible until it's done. Isn't that the truth? I mean, think about just this week, my grandson was here and he was joking about the fact that he's got some little brothers at home that can't understand why if they're talking on the phone, they can't just hold the phone over to their artwork and show whoever they're talking about. Well, we laughed about that, but is that unreasonable? Not at all. I mean, if you have FaceTime or Skype, you can essentially do that right now. A few years ago, people would have said that's impossible. You'd never be able to do that. I used to install phones in cars years ago, back when mobile phones were just beginning to be available. It was extremely complicated and expensive. You had to have an antenna on top of your car about the size of an oak tree, for one thing, so it was easily identified driving down the road and looked weird, but the mechanics of putting a mobile phone in were extremely complicated. I mean, my gosh, now you have it in your shirt pocket. Talk to anybody in the world, anywhere you want to. Not only talk to them, you can see them if you want to. Well, it's all, it always seems impossible until it's done. The things I saw yesterday at the car show were just amazing. I mean, I'm a car guy, you know that. But to look at the cars, these were exotic, one-of-a-kind cars. A lot of them where there is only one in existence. It's the sensuous steel 
display. If you just Google that, you'll find you can look through the cars that are there, and they are just beyond description. But some of the things that were done back in the early 30s were amazing when we think about it. I mean, flush-mounted, button-operated door handles. So there's no handle exposed at all, just a tiny button that you push and it opens the door. I mean, retractable convertible. I remember when Ford came out with their retractable convertible, meaning it is a hard top, but then you push some buttons, the trunk opens up in a reverse position and the top folds and goes down in there. Well, now, of course, you know, Lexus has that, Toyota, Nissan have that, Volkswagen, I mean, lots of cars, it's pretty common. But when that came out, it was a big deal. But that came out in 1958 as a big deal with Ford. I had no idea that back in 1936, there was another retractable hardtop. They had it then on cars. But this is when styling was just beyond imagination, when cars were truly art, when somebody would, it was an art display to have a car. I, geez, I'd love to have that back in the automobile industry. Today, cars are a little more than just basic utilitarian transportation. You look in a parking lot, you can't find your own because you're driving a white Honda Odyssey and there's 6,000 of them in the Walmart parking lot that are exactly the same. I mean, golly, when do we lose cars being distinctive and and really being works of art? I mean, I, I wish we could reinstate that again. I know that'll never happen with all the regulations about safety and speed, efficiency, cost, all those things, I mean, have driven cars into being just a commodity. Sad but true. Hey, I still look for those things Joanne mentioned yesterday. Oh, well, actually, we were driving back from the airport and a car passed us. It was a Volvo SUV. She said, well, why don't you get one of those? I'm in the market again. I'm, I'm got the hots to find something. She says, why don't you get one of those? And I said, golly, it's just a conservative, average American vehicle. I want something that gets your attention, not just to be showy, but just something that gives you the pride of ownership, something that you can feel good about driving down the road. Well, that's me. Well, let's let's share some success stories. We got a bunch of them. They continue coming in. Thanks for sending those in. Continue sharing those. Love them, love them. Now, I got a, a lengthy note from from Jamie, who was an attendee at our recent coaching with excellence event. He was here from Buffalo, New York, but he's one of the things he's done kind of on the side for a long time is gardening projects. And he said when they were getting out of debt, he really accelerated that was doing gardening projects. And he would uh, start off. He started off at like 15 to $20 an hour. And then as he got more and more work, he started to bring on employees and he was going to pay them eight or $9 an hour. So he started charging like uh, 25 to $30 an hour so he could pay them and still be making money in the override as a manager. Very legitimate way to set it up. But he said a couple of weeks ago, he heard me talking about the fact that only amateurs charge by the hour, professionals charge by the project, and he had a job that somebody wanted him to do. And so he bid the job rather than bidding so much per hour, he just bid the job. And when it was all said and done, he realized that he made $70 an hour. He says, that's essentially the first job that I've been in that kind of money. It was just awesome. Wanted to share that with you. Anyway, that comes from Jamie, where he learned the power of bidding a job by the project rather than by the hour. Now, I just engaged a gardener 
Those of you who have been here to our property realize we've got a lot of things that Joanna and I have created together, but the maintaining of that takes a lot of time, really more time than what we have available at this point. So I put a little ad on Craigslist, and I had shared some of that, I think in a blog or something, a little bit about that. And somebody challenged me, wondering how I justified offering an hourly rate. I told, I, I put in this little note that I need somebody just to, you know, do weeding, take care of things around here, and I'd pay $12 an hour. And so the the listener wondered how I would how I justified offering a per hour fee when I talk so much against that. Well, really what I the way I responded and my thinking was I don't know how much time it's going to take anyone to take care of what I've got here. So if somebody comes in and works by the hour for 2 weeks, we'll have kind of a benchmark for how much time it's going to take and I would then be open to bidding it you know, doing something where we just agreed on like a weekly amount or a monthly amount. Now, as it turns out, the young man that I didn't engage as our gardener gave me a monthly retainer bid right out of the gate. He walked the property. He knows he's really familiar with taking care of properties like this. So he gave me a bid based on my contracting annually for one year, but he'd do it for so much monthly. Well, I thought it was amazing. I thought it fit. I was amazed with his knowledge. And so that's exactly what we did. We did go with the monthly rate. I never did pay somebody hourly. And usually that doesn't happen around here. People don't get paid hourly. They get paid for what they produce. Well, Norman and Diane, a few weeks ago, probably, they wrote a note about the fact they were going to have their first art show as they're getting out of debt. It was called Far Out Art. So they had kind of a combination, I think, of art and garage sale items and so on. But anyway, Norman says, we had it last Friday and Saturday night, the 12th and 13th, despite not yet having a website and only promoting this through handout cards. We did awesome. I was hoping we would have 60 people show up for the entire event, but we had that many show up in just the first hour. We received so much praise. We're already starting plans for our next event. We made money and have started a very good network. We did all this from a small trailer park in the middle of the summer in the Southwest desert. They're from Tucson, Arizona. If you think you can or think you can't, you are right. And we decided we think we can. We were right. Thanks for all your encouragement. We'll come visit you when we're debt free. Well, look forward to your visit. Norman, what a great story. Congratulations on taking action, believing that you could. That comes from the old Henry Ford quotation, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. And that does prove to be true in pretty much any situation. Now, this is a note. This is this was circulating on 48days.net, our community that is now over 13,000 people, people who are linking arms, sharing ideas, and accelerating their success together. But this comes from Aaron Kerr from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He put a note up, and then I corresponded with him about it. But he was here for our Right to the Bank event learning how to take your writing and leverage in that um, probably a year ago, as I recall, something like that. So he puts up this note on 48days.net, the little Kindle book that earned me $29,000 in five months. Now here's part of his note. On February 4th, 2013, I published a collection of novels by Lucy Maud Montgomery entitled The Anne Stories. These novels are legally in the public domain, meaning they're no longer under copyright. My collection featured eight books from the Anne of Green Gables series. 
I sold the entire collection as a single Kindle download through Amazon for 99 cents. To be perfectly honest, when I started publishing public domain books for Kindle, I never really expected significant sales from my and collection or any other work. My goal was to get a few titles in the store, which would each sell between five and 10 copies per day. Not a huge amount, you might say, but with a family of six on a single income, every little bit helps. We would have been thrilled with $150 to $200 per month extra in our family budget. My expectations have mostly proven true on my other published books, but not on the Anne of Green Gables collection. It started out slowly for the first few days, but within a week it was selling 20 a day, then 30, then 50. On the Saturday morning of February 23rd, something changed. I logged into Kindle midday, found the book was selling at a rapid rate, even though I'm not sure the exact spark that caused the acceleration. Amazon may have featured the collection somewhere on its site, or perhaps a prominent blogger or Facebook user posted it. But that Saturday alone, the Ant Collection sold 2,100 copies. The five months since I posted my Ant Collection have brought these remarkable results. Most sales in a single day, now again, it's selling for 99 cents. Most sales in a single day, 7,338 total copies sold during this period, 75,000 plus total income generated in the U S store, $29,300 best overall ranking in the paid Kindle store. Number one, yes, you read that right. My Anne of green Gables Kindle collection hit the number one overall spot in the Amazon Kindle store. My wife and I checked before falling asleep on the evening of February 26th. The book was sitting at number two behind a novel by Nicholas Sparks. And then he talks about one of their kids uh, was awake during the night and he checked it about 3 a.m. And boom, there it was, number one. He says, as, as a final note, I'm doing some work to expand my public domain publishing. I've created a little company and website called Timeless Reads. If you'd like to see what I currently offer, sign up to be notified when new collections are released. Just scoot on over to Timeless Reads. Dot com. If you have questions about Kindle publishing, he says, please send me a message through 48 days. I'm busy. I'm a busy guy, but would love to help if I can. Again, you, his name is Aaron Kerr, K-E-R-R. You can find him in the 48days.net community and, and see everything that I just shared here and a whole lot more about that. Now, is that cool or what? Now, when we talk about having something out of the public domain, we're talking about a book that has been written by someone else. But because copyrights haven't been renewed or it's been around a very long time, written back before 1923, a lot of those materials are in the public domain. You can go get those, republish them. Aaron put a nice cover on it, put several stories together, put it up and available as Kindle and made 29,000 bucks in five months. I love those stories. Love them, love them, love them. Now, here's another one. Well, this is kind of a twist. Let Let me insert this one. Tim asked, I love the success stories you mentioned a couple times now about a guy that buys cameras in bulk on eBay and sells them individually on Amazon, making a nice living. Yes, I'm very familiar with eBay, new to Amazon, but looking to create an e-commerce income stream similar to what he did, but in a different niche. If it's possible to email him, please let me know. I would like to see an example of what he did online with his permission, of course. Now, this, this is the point I want to make with this. Yeah, I can connect you to Jamie, who did what you're talking about. He he was at one of our recent events, and he did exactly, he does what you're talking about. He buys cameras in bulk, and eBay sells them individually on Amazon, and makes a very nice living doing that. 
But here's the thing. Don't do what Jamie did. Do what makes sense for you. I mean, there's a simple principle here, and that is if you buy apples for $3 a bushel and then sell them one at a time for 50 cents, you're going to make a lot of money. People have been doing that since Adam and Eve were picking apples off the tree, I suppose. So find an idea that works for you. Don't just try to duplicate what somebody else has done. Find something that makes sense to you. What is it that appeals to you where you could buy them in bulk and sell them? You may be able to buy things at a local shop in your town somewhere. I, I know a guy who used to have conduct auctions where he would have, you know, four wheelers and cars and all kinds of things he would have there. But one of the things that he would really hype up is jewelry. Well, there's tremendous markup in jewelry. And so you can have a ring that you, where you show retail on this is $3,000, but you can buy it for $147. I mean, you see that all the time. You walk into stores. Well, those were such hot items at his auctions where people are standing around bidding on these things. He would have like a two-day auction. If he sold out his jewelry in the first day, he'd go the next morning to one of the big box retailers and clean them out. Buying right at retail, their jewelry would take it to his auction and he'd hold up the same thing you're going to see there. You know, here's something. It's two carats. It retails for $4,500. Who's going to give me 500 bucks? And he'd start right off at prices that were beyond what he had just paid retail out of a store that morning. Now, I don't mean to present that in a way that we are deceiving people, but if, if you know how to sell things, there's a whole lot of things out there where you can buy them at a reasonable cost and reposition them to sell them where you make a lot of money doing that. Find your own idea. Find something that you're already excited about. I mean, I could get excited about doing like exotic model cars, just that what I was talking about, you know, the old collector cars, you know, just do that. Find places where I buy those, sell those. I mean, that would be an idea that I would take and expand. So don't try to do what Jamie did. Find your own idea and do the same, use the same business model. Well, Greg from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Well, he's not from there anymore. I'll tell you that as in, in his note here. But Greg says we're about to embark on an exciting journey. One where my wife, two boys, and I will follow our passion and move to Marco Island, Florida. Now, that's an island down off the Keys. This journey began many months ago as a casual conversation one evening. Could we? Should we? But I had a business, and my wife had a successful real estate career. Kids, family, friends, possessions, how could we possibly move across the country? Well, our conclusion was, let's go for it. Now, there have been many 4 a.m. thoughts causing doubt, but I want to thank you for the incredible advice and encouragement found through your teachings and shows. I've found a few friends who truly do follow their passion. Most settle for a mediocre life, mediocre life that make them comfortable. I have found that change is hard when you attempt to boldly move away from all that gives you comfort. It's not easy. Hope to see you at Innovate. Greg, what a great Story. Now, you didn't tell us anything about what you're going to be doing on Marco Island. Um, I assume you're not just uh, retiring in wealth and fame to live out the rest of your days there. I assume you're going to have some kind of business you're going to do there. As we know, a lot of businesses these days are not geographic-centered. They're totally portable, so you can choose to live anywhere that you want to. And maybe that's true, true with you. Certainly true with my business. I mean, it wouldn't matter if you're listening to this podcast. It wouldn't matter if I'm sitting in my office in Franklin, Tennessee, if we move to Boulder, Colorado tomorrow or to Hawaii. 
could do exactly the same thing in exactly the same format. Everything I do could be done in the same way. That was very intentional, incidentally, where when I was designing my business to be what it is today, that it would be totally portable. Uh, Next week, we'll be out of town. We'll be gone for a couple weeks, but there'll be no break in anything that I do because it's so easy to take those, even not to a new living situation, but just simply, well, I am on the road. Now, this comes from Jeff. This is a situation that both excites me and exasperates me. Jeff says, I'm hoping you can pull a rabbit out of the hat for me. My latest successful business is knife sharpening. I worked and learned by myself for the first year, and then I started another guy in the business. He was profitable after a couple months and just finished his first full year. Now that I have a successful guinea pig to show that the business model works, it's time to start expanding. I have plans to spread this all over the country during the next 20 years. I can get someone up and running in a month for less than $10,000, and then I license the Sharpen Well You Shop brand for $100 a month. I thought long and hard about how to find individual prospects across the country when I noticed an article in the paper on a job fair for veterans. Then I thought I could take it a step further to disabled veterans. This is a business that someone who has lost a leg or two could run just as well as I and maybe even better. With this inspiration, I went to the Veterans Administration Center in Palo Alto, tried to find someone to direct me to a disabled veteran with an entrepreneurial bent. After six weeks of trying, I found only two contacts, but the concept of starting any veteran in their own business did not fit into the strict guidelines of their programs. They are geared only to place veterans as employees and have nothing to offer veteran entrepreneurs. I don't want to hire employees or receive tax credits or any government benefits. I just want to help a disabled vet start and thrive in their own business. It seems like the organizations I found on the web only want to set up veterans as employees and companies for the government kickbacks rather than actually helping the veterans. Well, he goes on with a question, you know, do I have any advice? Well, this is the kind of thing that absolutely drives me crazy. I mean, you're exactly right, Jeff. I mean, there, there's all these well-meaning services out there that deprive the very people they claim to help from their best options. And we see the very same thing with ex-convicts. They're not good candidates for traditional jobs, but everyone tries to help them push them into a cubicle at $8 an hour. I mean, how absurd. I mean, with the ex-cons, a lot of them, a lot of them are very creative. I mean, the things they did that got them in trouble proved their creativity. And a lot of them did things where they had access to big chunks of money in short periods of time. Now that could go all the way from, you know, selling jewelry at an auction to robbing a bank. But, uh, and a lot of those things did get them in trouble, but they're used to handling money in ways that are not just eking out an hourly job and getting a paycheck at the end of the week. And that's why there's such a high recidivism rate for convicts ending up back in prison. You put them in a job with your well-meaning little service company and, a month later, they're bored out of their minds, and on the way home, you know, they hit up a convenience store, and they're back in prison. You know, the, the thrill of doing something that has a big payoff, that has that kind of adrenaline rush, doesn't fit well with just sitting in the cubicle or being paid by the hour. Now, 
Oh, I love the model that you've got going. Incidentally, I've got some programs here and I sent some links to Jeff and I'll put those in the podcast notes about some of the training programs for ex-felons. That is the, the highest success rate. I mean, we know that traditionally there's about an 85% recidivism rate for people who have been in prison. That means 85% of them end up back in prison again. If they go through the PEP program, prisoner entrepreneur program, that is really being done well in Texas and a few other states that drops to as low as 8% from 85 to 8% because you were giving them an idea to start some kind of a business where they really can do well. That's what I propose for what you're doing here is, and yeah, I mean, I commend you on what you're doing and I think you've got a great idea to go directly to wounded veterans, ex cons, coming out of prison and you can expand your business model using people like that and rock and roll with it. One, just one thing I would um, just make sure that you got all your ducks in a row for how you're doing your business where you are training them, you get a fee for training them and then you get an on, ongoing licensing fee. Now we're talking about a franchise opportunity, business opportunity, Business opportunity usually is something where you just show people how it's done. You get a one-time fee and they're on their own from there on. When you are charging an ongoing monthly fee, be that a royalty, meaning a percentage of their income or a licensing fee, you're right on the line with what is defined as a franchise. Don't do this and without exploring clearly what the legal qualifications are for a franchise. You don't want to be doing this and all of a sudden have 50 guys around the country who are doing this and then somebody points out the fact that you really have a franchise, you just haven't called it that and you're in big trouble legally. There are a lot of people who did that. Auntie Anne's, who has the the amazing, delicious pretzels that you see in malls everywhere, she did that initially. She licensed the idea and when she had 20 or 30 stores up and running, realized that she was totally in violation of the laws regarding franchises. So just make sure you understand what you've got there. Well, this comes from from Gabriel, who says, thank you, thank you for your consistently sharing your insight with all of us. After reading 48 Days, I finally got the guts to leave a company with poor ethics, found not just a replacement job, but an even better job with a Fortune 300 company as a licensed mortgage banker selling refinanced loans. My question is this, how should I deal with the recent spike in interest rates? And how do I deal with my coworkers' negatively negativity and their the sky is falling attitude? I will not be deterred by those things out of my control. And I'm confident I will succeed in my new role, even though I have never sold a mortgage in my life. And I also know that I simply can't stick my head in the sand and avoid the realities that come with a tumultuous market. What should I do? Well, Gabriel, I mean, you're, you're in a position much like what you're going to encounter, no matter what the industry is. Every industry has its ups and downs. Real estate, mortgage, banking, construction, the auto industry, it doesn't matter what it is. It's going to have its ups and downs. So don't let their negativity rub off on you. Now, you can add to that, don't watch TV, don't read the newspapers, set your searches for news that relates to your business, and then fill your mind with success stories. Talk to those people in your industry who are doing extremely well. I mean, the recent spike in interest rates, you know what happens every time that comes along? Geez, about 70% of the people who are mortgage brokers duck their heads and they run off in direction of something that isn't as hard 
not as difficult. What does that mean? You're going to be left with tons of business and there's a whole lot of hot buyers right now trying to get into this real estate upsurge. Now you're seeing the backside of a correction because we saw real estate really crash and correct itself just three or four years ago. Well, what's happening already? It's coming back way too fast. I mean, my son-in-law is a real estate agent and he'll take somebody out for a house that was listed at nine o'clock this morning. They listed the house at $260,000. He takes a buyer out there and they offer $290,000 and don't get the house. It's sold before noon. I mean, that that's happening time and time again. It's nuts. Real estate is coming back way too strong. There are already artificial inflations in prices in houses. I mean, I've got a Somebody in our neighborhood, I drove by the other day, and they're now selling their house. Well, they purchased it, well, quite a few years ago, it purchased it for $212,000, and they just listed it for $799,900. They're just trying to take advantage of this upsurge, a shortage in inventory right now, and this uh, hot mania that buyers have to go out and get homes. You're on the backside of that. The way the government controls that artificially getting out of, out of hand is to raise the interest rates. So it slows things down a little bit. But you still have a really hot market that you're going into right now for people wanting to refinance and wanting to you know, buy new properties. So just counter the negativity that you're hearing from your coworkers and realize you can ride this out. You can ride this out and do really, really well in this market. Well, Crystal has a question. She says, Dan, I'm 26 years old. feel as though I don't have any expertise. I want to start a blog about volunteer management and eventually be a consultant for nonprofits who want to improve their volunteer program. I have some expertise in volunteer management for a nonprofit online student radio station, wrote a large chunk of my thesis about volunteer management. I'm wondering how I can best go about this career goal and make a name for myself. Well, when you're talking about being a consultant, I mean, it's just a slight shift from being an employee. It just means that you're going to have multiple clients instead of just one. I mean, so there's really no difference, but you have to then establish why you have value. What do you bring to the table that makes you worthy of being paid the fees that a consultant should get? So you can do that. You know who your target audience is. You're, if you're going to work with nonprofits, there's hundreds and hundreds of them around. doesn't matter where you live. You live right here in the, tennis, in the Nashville, Tennessee area. There are thousands of nonprofits that are located right here in Middle Tennessee. So there's certainly no shortage of target companies. However, there is kind of a caveat here, Crystal, and that is nonprofits aren't used to paying a whole lot of money for consultants. Now, I know that's a generalization, but they're tough to get money from. And when you have something that is intangible is what you're talking about, how to manage their volunteers better. That's not something that leads. If you're going to come in and, and do a seminar on how to raise more funds, you know, how to get big contributors, wealthy individuals in your market area to give to your organization, that has an immediate appeal. But when you talk about how to manage the volunteer base better, it's kind of an intangible. That's not something that adds directly to the bottom line financially. And thus, they're very reluctant to add a line item where they have to pay off the top in money that has been donated to, to you who are going to help them understand how to manage the volunteers better. Now, can it be done? Yes. 
Absolutely. And if that's what your passion is, that's what your expertise is, go out there and do it with excellence. Be remarkable in doing that. Yes, you can do that. But there are some challenges with the way that you lay that out. No question about it. Well, let me take a breath here for a minute. Just to remind you, this is Dan Meller on the 48 Days Radio Show. Each week, we take your questions, real questions from you, the listeners. You got a question you'd like to have considered? I'd be delighted to see it. I love opening the mailbox each week, seeing what has come in. Just send that question to askdan at 48days.com. Or you can go to the 48days.com website, click on the podcast link, and you'll see an opportunity there to submit your question. All right, here's the guy who wants to replace his $80,000 ear job. Doesn't want me to use his name because there's, it's a small town. That's fine. He's got an unusual name. He says, I want to replace my day job where I make $80,000 a year. Everyone tells me it's a great job, but I'm just bored with it after eight months of work. I want to start a business so I can work from home and spend time with my two kids during the day, even if that means just being able to eat lunch with them during the day. Where do I start? What are some kinds of businesses that I can start on the side that I can do while still having my day job until I can replace my income? Thanks for all your help. Well, what does it take to replace $80,000 a year? I mean, is that doable? Is that something that is only attainable? in a salaried position or can you in fact do that in a little side business that you start well if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time you know there's all kinds of ways that you can in fact replace that kind of income yeah i mean we just break it down the first thing i do is to break that down i mean eighty thousand dollars a year that's what roughly fifteen hundred dollars a week or a little more than six thousand dollars a month can you do that wow, let's just kind of trace back through some of the things I've already touched on in this particular podcast. Let's replay a little bit. What if you did a Kindle book that brought in $30,000? Oh, geez, do three of those a year and you're done. (laughs) I mean, is that possible? Absolutely. What if you license your sharpening idea, knife sharpening idea for $100 a month? And now you've got 60 guys around the country that you've trained. They're paying you the $100 a month. Boom, there's your $6,000 a month. What if you're buying cameras on eBay in bulk, selling them one at a time on Amazon, and you make your $80,000 doing that? But the real key is to start with something you already know about and enjoy. Just build on that. I mean, I could never be successful selling my own art. I shouldn't say that. I guess if I wanted to, I could give it a shot. Uh, But anyway, it'd be a challenge for me. But I know lots of people who are doing that. I mean, I wouldn't have the patience to be a sculptor, but my friend Scott Stearman does. And his works are big, big bucks. I mean, Scott's the one that's going to be here for Innovate Conference in September, September 5th and 6th, our Innovate Conference, where we're going to be helping people tap into their unique creativity, how to put legs on those ideas, how to make money from those. I mean, that's what we're going to be doing. Scott's going to start Thursday morning with a three foot square block of clay. And over the course of the two days, now this is not some sculptor where sculpture where he spends, you know, six months doing it in the course of two days, he's going to release from that big block of clay, a totally original 
48 Days Eagle. Now, I'm confident it's not going to be shoddy work or quick or anything. Scott can do that. He's totally convinced me he can do that in the two days. But that's his unique passion. That's what he uses to make his $80,000 and more a year. Find something you enjoy. Then be intentional about making that a business. Now, last night we had a young couple at our house for dinner. She's extremely talented as a musician and, you know, has albums out and so on. I won't mention her name, but she's having a hard time making any money. When I ask her about it, she says, oh, she hates dealing with money. She hates talking about it with potential customers. She hates to charge people anyway for her performances or products. Well, guess what I told her? I told her she's going to continue to struggle with money. Not because she isn't good, but because of her attitude about money. Her attitude about money is going to keep it far away from her. So you don't just have money show up because you want money. You have money show up because you're doing something extremely well. But then in doing something extremely well, you also create a real business plan to accompany that. You can't have one without the other and you can be really really good and be really really broke your entire life but if you want to change that cycle then don't say you hate money and hate talking about it and don't want to charge people for what you do with that kind of an attitude you're going to continue to be broke success is not going to force its way through that kind of a mental attitude force its way on you just not going to happen well, Elizabeth says, I recently discovered your podcast and love them. I've been teaching in teaching far too long and I have not been happy. It shows because I've been laid off many times. It happened again this summer. Now I'm trying to get my exercise nutrition coaching off the ground and a senior companion business. Most of it has been with seniors. I know I need to get a license and be bonded to do the work as companion work will require that I drive folks around. The thought of working for someone, again, gives me the shivers. But if I have to do it another year, okay. What advice do you have for me? I want to start a mastermind group here, too. Any words of wisdom? Well, one thing, Elizabeth, is I would not just ignore the fact that you've been laid off time and time again as a teacher. Look for the underlying reasons there. Learn from that. Don't just say, well, you know, that's behind me. Now I'm going to go into business for myself because what you're talking about doing, you're going to be an exercise nutrition coach. Um, that sounds very similar to teaching. If you didn't have credibility as a teacher and people didn't want you around as a teacher, didn't want to keep you on as a teacher, I mean, you, you ought to take a look at that. I mean, that's like somebody going on. I, I had somebody come up to me one time after a presentation and said, Dan, will you look at my resume? And I said, well, sure, you know, I will. I mean, I, I hate to do that because the resume tells me nothing. So I glanced at the resume and I said, well, how many interviews have, have you had? She said, 53. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Your resume must be stupendous. It's doing exactly what you want to do, getting you the interviews. But if you've interviewed 53 times and haven't gotten a job offer, geez, it's not the resume I'm holding in my hand. It's you. What are you doing to sabotage yourself 
that much. You need to learn from that. You need to look at that. Be honest about that. Ask the people who interviewed you. Do mock interviews with other people. Do something to uncover. What is it that keeps those opportunities slipping through my hands again and again? So the first thing, you need to learn why is it that you are not successful as a teacher? Because there's too many commonalities in what you want to do as an exercise nutrition coach to think that you're just going to shift gears and this is going to work, even though that didn't. Too many commonalities. Learn from that. Then learn how to be an effective teacher. I mean, we could replace the term coach with teacher, mentor, a whole bunch of things. There's too many commonalities. Learn from that and then build your business. Yeah, structure it so it is a real business. Learn how to do it with excellence. Nate says, today I was reading Proverbs 15 and in verse 22 it talks about the wisdom in having a number of counselors. Thanks to your wise counsel, I'm working on my business plan, preparing to launch an awesome business soon. I want to have people in place to help me identify the most successful path possible. The 48days.net community has been a wonderful help, but I would like to gather a small group of people to act as my advisory committee. Specific people I can be accountable to. An Eagles group would be perfect for this, but I don't think I'll begin one until after I launch out on my own full time. Any suggestion for finding, asking, and working with an advisory committee? Well, here too, Nate, we've got some terms that really overlap. You can have an advisory board. You can have a board of directors. You can have a mentor group. You can have a mastermind group, a brainstorming group. The terms really are not as significant as the conceptually what you want to accomplish. If you want to have people that give you wise input, I'm not sure why you would wait until after you start a business to form your own equals group or mastermind group. Do it now. That's a great way to, in fact, form your advisory board. I've had a couple mastermind groups out here recently. I've talked about that, but a young group of guys just uh, two weeks ago, 12 guys all in their 30s, but they're all entrepreneurs. What a great way to share ideas. And they're finding that they're leapfrogging over competitors and peers of theirs because of the wisdom they're getting in this group where they share ideas and help each other so much. So you might explore again the mastermind document that I have, how to do that, how to put the group together. If you just want an advisory committee, you you can find people who are successful in their own right in particular areas of expertise. Ask them if they would serve on an advisory committee with you. That usually means that you're going to meet perhaps once a quarter, It's not like a mastermind group or a group of peers where you may meet once a week. With an advisory committee or even a board of directors, you may meet like four times a year. If that's adequate and you want to bring in some big talent and give them a great lunch together, you you can find people who would be willing to do that. But it's going to be a minimal amount of commitment to you and your idea, much less so than a group of peers where you're kind of linking arms and all helping each other together. Um, Keegan says, okay, I'm going to just, I'm going to unpack this one a little bit. This may be the last question today. Keegan says this, I've been a huge, I'm a huge fan of your show. I've been in sales for a while and I used your strategy from 48 days to the work you love to get a job selling something I absolutely love. Now listen to this though. The problem is I've just come to terms with the fact that I don't like sales. I realized this when you described in last week's podcast about how emotionally draining you would be if you were talking to people all day. 
I'm an introvert, and I've worked so hard to be outgoing that I've stopped searching for my heart's desires. I'd like to start an information site. While still putting 110% into my day job, the question is, what's a reasonable time frame in which to replace 50% of my current income? Okay, you've got a whole lot of great questions in here, Keegan. Let's just kind of take it from the top. One, well, let me take it from the bottom rather than from the top because I want to come back to that. What's a reasonable time frame to replace 50% of your current income? I always, in working with people on transitions like this, say let's work with a 30, I mean with a 90 to 180 day time frame. So we've got three to six months. Three to six months ought to be a time in which you can replace your entire income. That's what I would shoot for. So where are you going to hit 50%? Yeah, maybe you can do that in 90 days by starting, getting something up and running in 90 days. Having an information site, okay, doesn't take much to get that up and running. If you're promoting it, you're blogging, you're commenting on other people's blogs, you're interviewing. I mean, I do lots and lots of interviews. I was working with my speaking coach this week and we were looking at all the speaking I do in its various forms. And I said, well, I did 26 interviews in the last 30 days. And she was like, you did what? I said, well, I've done 26 interviews, a radio and podcast interviews that I've done. I do that a lot. So that is a big part of my speaking. That is a part of my presentation. That's part of my marketing is doing those interviews. So you can do those kind of things to dramatically explode your information site and then the profitability that comes from that. But I want to go back to the fact that you say you've come to terms with the fact that you don't like sales. Ouch. If you don't like sales, you're going to be broke for the rest of your life. Just get used to it. Trust me. If you don't like sales, you're going to be broke the rest of your life. I'll repeat it. Now, with that being said, you can frame the kind of selling you do to fit your personality. So sure, having an information site rather than selling used cars, as an example, can take you as an introvert from something that would be very uncomfortable to something that could be just right in your sweet spot. But if you're, if you have an information site online, don't ever underestimate the importance of selling. You have got to sell. You've got to have something in place, whether it's systems, passive exposure, marketing, doing interviews, whatever. You've got to have something where you are very intentionally selling what it is you have. Otherwise it's not going to make any money. So just look at who you are, how you're wired, find a sales model that fits. But don't diminish the importance of selling. It'll sabotage the very best efforts that you are trying to come up with to present information. If, you, if you've got an information site, I mean, the only way you make money is if people are giving you money for that information. Any way you frame it, that's called selling. So, just recognize you are not walking away from selling. You're moving the sales model from what's required of you now to something that fits you better. Then create a clear plan and do it with excellence. Well, God, we're at the end of our time. Let me just recap. I mean, go back and listen again to how Aaron Kerr generated $29,000 in five months with a little Kindle book with, that he didn't even write. It's just a book out of the public domain. He compiled it, put it together with a nice cover. Boom. 30000 bucks in five months with a book where he didn't even struggle over sweat, blood, and tears to create the content. That's pretty cool. 
Well, remember the question, I'm 26 years old, feels like I don't have any expertise. You got to look, you got to dig, you got to figure out what is it that comes to the surface? What is it that you do well that makes you remarkable? Without that, you don't have any place out there. I was talking to one of my grandsons this week about the fact he says, well, I just need to get a job. And I said, well, if you just get a job, then they're just, you're going to be somebody that's easy to replace and you'll just get minimum wage. He said, yeah. That's what I expect. I said, don't do that. You're my grandson, for Pete's sake. You find what it is that you do that not everybody else can do well. We've got to figure that out. What is it that you do that sets you apart from everybody else? And all of a sudden, you go from making minimum wage to making something reasonable. Well, can you replace the income from a day job at $80,000 a year? Absolutely. A thousand different ways. Break it down. Figure out what fits you. Have fun doing it. And then don't ever think that you aren't good at selling. If you aren't good at selling, you're going to be poor. You, you can be good at selling. Just find the selling model that fits your personality and you can knock it out of the park just like all the other ideas that I talk about. Well, we've been taking care of business. Remember the Nelson Mandela quotation, it's always seems impossible until it's done. Be one of the people who gets it done. Get her done. Well, thanks for being part of this exciting community where we are finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, fulfilling, and profitable. Don't settle for less.